that we are going to start a brand new series going through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're calling it the Gospel of Freedom. And the whole idea behind that, obviously, is because the book of Galatians really is a book that is, some have described it as sort of the Magna Carta or the Emancipation Proclamation for the Christian. It is the letter that seeks to set people free in the gospel from legalism, from other types of forms of sin, so that they can live free, serving God with a free conscience. All right, what I want to start out by saying before we jump into this, uh, then I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a preface. Uh, Then we're going to read the first five verses, then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work on this uh, great book. It should be a great time. I'm very excited. Glad you guys are here. Hopefully you guys will be able to stay with us for the next four or five months or so, something like that, as we go through this great book. Um, But what I want to say basically by way of preface is if you're the type of person, uh, there's really kind of two different types of people. There are um, sort of the liberalist. What I mean by that is you like to really indulge in on the border living, you love to just sort of live kind of as close to sin as you can without actually sinning. Uh, And then I'm going to describe the legalist, all right? The legalist is somebody that loves to set up parameters. They relate to God according to rules, uh, different types of traditions or methodologies, or you are the type of person that tends to get uh, connected to different ways of doing things, and you have this propensity to look at other people who don't do them the way that you do them, and you get critical of them, you look condescendingly down upon them, um, you relate to God on the basis of performance, on the basis of works. In other words, one of the best ways to determine that is if you're walking good with God, you're reading your Bible a lot, you're going to church a lot, then you really feel like God loves you. Um, you struggle with legalism, all right? If you look condescendingly upon other people that don't do things exactly the way that you do things, uh, you struggle with legalism. Uh, the book of Galatians will deeply deeply offends you, deeply offends you. I'm just going to be straight up front and tell you, it will offend you. So that when the offense comes, you're not, you can't be like, I had no idea this was coming. Because you'll actually be able to go back in your memory banks and remind yourself that, oh, that's right, the pastor told me that I was going to be deeply offended, now I'm offended. But what, what I want you to think about is, is hear the argument from start to finish about legalism. Now, I'm, saying, I'm not saying we're going to tackle all this today. I'm not going to offend all you right now. Uh, but definitely in the next few weeks, it'll happen. All right? It'll take place. Uh, but what I want you to think about is when it does happen, hear the argument out in its fullness. Don't just listen to 15 minutes of it and be like, this is ridiculous. I'm out of here. Go to another church. At least you know, show enough respect to stay for the whole thing. Listen to the whole thing that's basically going on. Because Paul, who writes this letter doesn't write just for the sake of getting a rise out of people. He's not just trying to offend people left and right just because he likes offending people, but because he realizes there's something greater that's at stake. What's at stake in the life of the legalist who relates to God by these rules and laws and the liberalist who loves to, you know, offend different people. The legalist relates to God. This is the type of person that's just like, you know, look, the real Christian are those who don't cuss. Real Christians are those who don't drink uh, beer or alcohol. Real Christians are ones who, you know, just listen to Christian music like Michael W. Smith. Real Christians are ones who have scriptures, you know, imprinted on their coffee cups. Real Christians are one who wear some of those cheesy Christian t-shirts. Those are real Christians. If, if, if you're the type of person that lives under that sort of umbrella, and you look, like I said, condescendingly on those who cuss, you look at them, you're like, how dare they say that? You look at those who drink, and you're like, well, I can't believe Christians can't do that. And obviously, you know, you edit out the fact that Jesus, you know, created wine and made wine at a wedding and all this type of stuff. If that's you and you're very quick to be critical of that, you're going to struggle with these offenses that Paul is going to bring to your mind. On the other hand, if you're the liberalist, meaning you like to just get a rise out of the legalist, you like to cuss in front of them just to see them irritated. All right? It's probably some of you right now, that's why you're laughing. You're like, oh my gosh, how did he know me? I don't know you, Paul knows you. But the point of the matter is, God's got your number as well. Um, The reality is, Paul's going to try to superimpose over both the legalist and the liberalist the gospel. Both extremes are wrong. I, I would go so far as to say, the one extreme of the legalist 
tends to be the predominant, more vocal one in the church today. I think a lot of churches you can go to and you get senses of more legalism than you do the liberalism, the liberalist type of mentality. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is because at heart, you know what I mean? You might be like, look, I know that guy. I know the legalist. The reality is, you know him because that's you. We're all that way. We have something of that to some degree somewhere in all of us. We all struggle with that. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to remove those straitjackets that we wrap ourselves in of extreme legalism and the straitjackets of extreme liberal type-ism and set us free to walk in the liberty of the gospel. It's, it's actually a beautiful book because God wants us to be free. He wants to set us free. And if you're the type of person that's just like, well, you know, in order to ensure that grace keeps being established, you got to protect it, you got to hedge it in, you got to put rules and regulations around it. You know what you just did? You just ruined gospel. I heard it once described this way. One of the best ways to know if grace is being preached properly is if it can be abused, you preached it right. I love that. I think it's, I mean, think about that. If it can't be abused, if it's so hedged in, so protected, so insulated from any type of attack because you put rules around it, see what you did? You just ruined grace. You created rules. And grace is not that. It's, it's, but it's more than that. It's, it's, it is that, but it's more than that. So the point that Paul is going to say is he's going to be addressing both segments of people. The main thing that Paul is really trying to tackle is the heart of the gospel. I pray. It's my prayer. It's my desire. I'm really excited about this, to be honest with you. I've been spending months preparing this, reading through the book of Galatians. I kind of feel like this racehorse at the very beginning of the race, and the guy just says, Go shoots the gun. I don't know what they do. I've never been to a horse race. But I just imagine, I'm super excited to preach this. More so than anything, because what my real hope is, is that when you hear the gospel, when you respond to the gospel, that you will be liberated. You will be set free. And as a result of hearing the gospel, and as a result of being transformed by the gospel that Paul's going to preach, you will actually be loving people rather than critical people. You'll be kind type people rather than those that are protecting yourself from those or the other people that don't act like you, that don't think like you, that don't look like you, that don't do the things that you do according to the same methodologies that you do them. That's what the gospel does. It sets people free. That's why a guy like Paul, who was once a Jew of the Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who had absolutely no interconnection with anybody from the outside world, let alone Gentiles, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. I'm going to read. We'll pray. We'll jump in. Galatians chapter 1. I want you to turn there real quick. Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 says this. Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask you right now that as we embark on a brand new book, a brand new study, Lord, that it would be more than just simple information that we're digesting. God, that this would be really, in a lot of ways, for many of us here, a brand new chapter in our lives. That we would learn how the gospel impacts the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we see other people. And that it would liberate us. It would set us free. That the gospel would be more than just good advice, good opinion, speculation, but it be exactly what it says it is, good news. It's good news. That points to a literal event, a historic event that we rejoice in. 
Because it's the baseline by which we're saved. It's the basis by which we have been brought into a brand new relationship. It's the basis by which we now have been made right with you and with other people, with ourselves, and with our environment. So God, I pray right now that you'd help us as we launch into this whole new study, be glorified in the things that we do and the things that we look at, and let Jesus be exalted, let our lives be humbled, let God be lifted up. God, let us be brought low before such a great God, because as we're humble ourselves before you, the Lord our God will lift us up. So we humble ourselves before you, and we ask you to do exactly what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to talk about this whole concept of the gospel. Uh, the Greek word euangelion. It's the idea of something that's been proclaimed. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. And as Paul launches into this gospel, this epistle, which is, uh, it's a book, it's a letter, and he's writing it to a group of people. We'll get more into that in just a second. We'll, we will put a better picture of what the gospel is. But to start with, there's a lot of misconceptions that there was as to what the gospel is. The gospel in our culture oftentimes gets dumbed down. Uh, we take it for granted. People assume they understand what the gospel is, but it's really not the gospel that they understand. And so what we want to make certain is that we understand the gospel. Like I said, that will become clearer, hopefully, as we go through today's message. Not just, you know, five weeks from now, I'll tell you what the gospel is. Hopefully every week we talk about the gospel. That will become more crystal clear as we kind of get through this. But we realize in our culture today... There's a lot of things that sort of pass for gospel. You know, we talk about music. A certain type of genre of music is like gospel, gospel music or whatever. I mean, we have all sorts of different ways by which we think about gospel. So I want for us to begin to think about gospel in terms of something that God authored, God created, and that gets defined by God. So in other words, we don't have the right to just sort of put our own definitions to it and sell it. I mean, God gives us the gospel. God is the gospel that we actually find out. John Piper, one of my favorite authors, actually wrote a book. talks about God is the gospel. Great book. Highly recommend it. And the point is, is that what we want to try to understand is that the good news really begins with and is, in substance, God himself. So what we're going to begin to do right now is I want to take a look at the first five verses going to basically give you five different ways by which Paul sort of sits the gospel in. And a lot of the things that we're going to be looking at the first few uh, moments that we have here together today, Paul sort of compresses everything that he's going to be conveying into the first five verses. I mean, everything sort of gets elaborated and um, broken down as the book kind of gets into it. As we get into the book, we'll begin to see most of the things that Paul's going to talk about Actually, he already kind of said in kind of summary form uh, in the first few verses. And uh, so we're going to just look at what Paul had to say about these things, and then we'll begin to take a look at them over the next few weeks to come. But with that, five things that I think Paul wants for us to understand in the very beginning stages of this as to what the gospel does, why it's so significant, why it's so important. So the first thing that we're going to take a look at in verse 1 is we're going to look at the whole reality that the gospel actually, take a look at the next slide, is that the the gospel is actually transformative. The gospel is transformative. So take a look at verse 1. We'll reread that, and then we'll pause on that right there, and we'll kind of reflect upon some things. Typically, it was called homiletics. Homiletics is like the study of the Bible. Uh, They typically tell you, don't make a point out of something that's really not a point. And so you'll find it here, Paul's not really making a point about this. I'm making a point about it because I think it actually points to the bigger picture what Paul's trying to convey about the gospel. But I think it allows us for just a moment as we reflect upon the fact that the gospel is transformative. It kind of launches us into the bigger, broader picture of what's happening in the book of Galatians. So with that, uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read. Paul, Stop. That's all we're going to look at in this first point. Paul. That's it. Paul. All right. You're like, how does it have to do with transformation? I'll tell you. You got to know a little bit about Paul. All right. Turn in your Bibles real quick to the book of Acts. I think it's around Acts chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 7. And you can keep your finger in Acts chapter 9. I want to read you a little bit of a passage here about the life of Paul. Uh, Paul is the author of this book. Uh, and I think it's probably good for us to understand a little bit about Paul. Because otherwise what ends up happening is we read this book and we just think, oh, Paul was always just like this mega apostle. No, he wasn't. Paul was not always a mega anything other than a mega sinner, just like all of us. 
And the reality is, is God did something in Paul's life that transformed him. And the answer really to that is the gospel came into Paul's life, changed him. So here's the story. In Acts chapter 9, pick it up around verse 32, uh, we're, we're told about this guy. Is that right? Sorry. Not Acts 9. Acts 7. Sorry. Acts chapter 7. I just like to hear your pages wrestle back and forth. All right. Chapter 7, about verse 56 we're told uh, this little narrative, this story about this guy by the name of Stephen. And he was uh, part of the early church. He's outside preaching, kind of in the open air. And the religious leaders gather around him. They're about to kill him. They don't like what he's saying. And we are first introduced to this guy Saul, or Paul, uh, in this particular narrative. Here, here's what it said, verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open. This is Stephen preaching. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses, they laid down their garments uh, at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the very first time uh, Saul appears into the narrative of the New Testament. Then it goes on to say, and it says, and they were stoning, or as they were stoning Stephen... Uh, he called out, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says this, and Saul approved of his execution. So here's what's happening. This young guy, Stephen, he's outside preaching. The early church doesn't like his message. They don't like the message of Jesus. They see it as sort of a threat to everything that they had I've been told to up until this point, they saw Jesus as a threat to the temple. Um, because obviously Jesus did say some threatening things or potentially threatening things against the temple. One time he says, you know, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it again from the, you know, rise it up. You know, we're told by the gospel writers that Jesus was actually referring to his body. But no doubt was also sort of uh, really in some ways condemning what the temple had become. Uh, in, in very, very short form, I think the reason for this is because the temple had actually become an idol. This great place, this great thing that was originally built by great King Solomon that was later rebuilt by the great uh, King Herod the Great, um, literally became sort of this idol. People worship, they love the idol. So to threaten the temple was actually threatening their idol. And you'll find that one of the reasons why Jesus got into so much trouble with the religious leaders is because he challenged the temple. He challenged their idol. The same is true for any of us in our lives, one of the best way to know to identify what your idols are is to, when anybody challenges them, anybody threatens them, you get violent. You get violent. All right? I mean, this could be, I mean, it could be sports. And it's like your wife being like, why do you always have to watch the football game? And you freak out. You're like, I have to. It's everything to me. That's your idol. That's why. It's everything to you. It gives you joy. It gives you comfort. gives you security. It's just like God. Right? For some of you, it's like diet. I hate diets. Diets are from the devil because food is your God. You go to the refrigerator, you open it up, there's a light that comes on. It's like the Shekinah glory of God. You turn in there at nighttime, you're really hurting, you're sad, you're bummed out. So you turn to the refrigerator, and the refrigerator gives you joy and happiness and peace and comfort. And there's a Shekinah glory attached to it as well. You eat it, you feel really good, happy. Again, everything that Jesus intends to provide for you. But you take away food, you get cranky, angry, you want to punch somebody in the throat. You're just not doing good. It's because it's an idol. One of the best ways to determine idols in our lives is how do you act when it's threatened or when it's taken away? Some of you, it's boyfriend, girlfriend. You always got to have one. If you don't have one, you're cranky, you're depressed, you'd rather die because you feel as if somehow your identity is lost. Please understand, these are little idols in our lives. The temple became an idol. Temple became an idol to first century Jews, Judaism. Jesus threatened it. They wanted to kill him. Stephen was doing the same thing. He, Jesus basically was saying, Jesus replaced the temple. We don't need to go to the temple anymore. The temple's great, but Jesus is the essence of which the temple pointed to. And so therefore, we love Jesus. We worship Jesus. Jesus provides comfort for us, not the temple. Jesus atones for our sins, not the temple. Jesus does it all. And they hated him for it, and they wanted to kill him. And so when they stoned Stephen, they took the clothes off. These guys that were throwing the stones, because after all, these are righteous garments, and if I'm going to kill somebody and commit murder... Better at least do it without wearing my righteous, holy, good clothes, Sunday school clothes there on church. Because obviously, I want to be righteous after I'm done committing murder. 
All right? I mean, so afterwards, they lay the clothes at the feet of Saul. And Saul's standing there, verse 1, chapter 8, says, this is good. This is good. Stephen needs to die. It's the first time we see Paul, Saul. Later on, verse 9, chapter 9, I should say, it goes on, it says, and Saul, he was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And they went to the high priest, and he asked for letters of the synagogue at Damascus so that they found any belonging on the way, men, women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly there was a light that came from heaven that flashed all around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Then later on, what ends up happening, Saul ends up going into the inner part of the city, uh, a, a, a man ends up coming to Saul, prays for him, so he's able to receive his sight. Saul gets blinded by this great light. And uh, ironically, what ends up happening is Jesus tells Saul, um, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up being a sent one to the Gentiles. Something radical is going on here in Saul's life. Raised up as a Jew, not just any Jew, he was trained under a guy by the name of Gamliel, which was one of the greatest uh, theological minds of the first century. Um, most rabbis highly, highly revered him. He was what was called a Pharisee. He was part of this very, very religious sect, very elite group of religious people. In some ways, uh, if it would be, say, compared to, say, Catholicism, he would have been kind of like a cardinal. He gave up his entire life. He would have devoted everything that he has to serving God, memorizing large portions of Scripture, uh, caring about in his life with some, you know, a sense of religious piety and importance. That was Saul. So the thought of a guy like him ever even hanging out with Gentiles was not even on his radar screen. The thought of even hanging with a bunch of non-Jews, it was just not even a part of his thought structure. And ironically, what ends up happening, because the gospel comes to him, changes him, Jesus says, you're going to be someone sent out to Gentile people to tell them about me. And what ends up happening is Paul, or Saul, ends up changing his name a little bit later. He goes out on his first missionary journey while he's on his first missionary journey while he's out there he ends up kind of running into this guy by the name of Sergius Paulus he ends up becoming a Christian and he's a Gentile he's a non-Jew and on his very first missionary journey immediately following that story from the rest of the Bible on his name is no longer called Saul his name is now referred to as Paul a lot of scholars have speculated why my opinion it's just my opinion it's not biblical truth it's just my opinion I think uh, the reason why Saul changed his name to Paul was because to re- he wanted to reflect the very first Gentile convert that he ever had, so he t- adopted his name, and it was also a way by which it helped him to remember his mission for the rest of his life, and also by way of reminder, I am a changed man. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not Saul anymore. I'm not... That guy that resented everybody that didn't live according to the same legalistic standard I live according to. He changed his name. His life was changed. Literally, the gospel is transformative. It will change you. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You know that your life is different. It's the gospel that takes guys like Simon, a fisherman, hanging out along the seashores of Galilee and changes his name to Peter, rock. Or takes a guy like Jacob, who's sort of this guy that's always perverting justice, always trying to get things for himself. He wrestles with God. The next day, he says, my name isn't Jacob anymore. My name is Israel, governed by God. That's what the gospel does. It changes you. It transforms you. And here's what we want to think to, to be about. If you've ever wondered, like, what's Calvary so all about? What are they trying to do? Here's, in a short nutshell, what we're all about. We're about the gospel. When the gospel changes you uh, individually, then you are a now changed person. You will act differently in your family, in your social structures, in your workplace, in your schooling environment, in your dorms. You will act differently. You will have an effect. Other people around you will meet Jesus. They will be transformed by the gospel. You get enough people that are transformed by the gospel. They marry people that are transformed by the gospel. They raise kids with the gospel in those families rather than dads somehow just leaving and abandoning their, chi- their children or their kids to 
love the television or to love their job or to love their career more than raising them and devoting themselves to them. What ends up happening is you have a transformed society. That's what we want to see. That's the the thumbnail of what we want to see in St. Louis. We want to see people who are impacted by the gospel, who impact the culture around us. That's what happens. That's what happens. When you're transformed by the gospel, it begins to transform the way that we treat other people. So therefore, the people that are hanging out in the street, they're not just homeless people that are sort of an eyesore. They're image bearers of God that are lost. We see people that are orphaned or or somehow lost in the system around us. They're not just people that are just to be rejected or throw at another type of system. They're people that are image bearers of God. People who are transformed want to transform. Does that make sense? Paul was transformed. The gospel is first and foremost transformative. The second thing we see about the gospel, well, take a look at this real quick, real fast. Pre-gospel, Paul's breathing out murderous threats. Post-gospel, he's preaching the words of life. Pre-gospel, he boasted in his pedigree, considered his righteousness or religious accomplishments as a badge of honor. Post-gospel, he boasts of Jesus, considers his righteousness or his religious accomplishments as, literally the Greek word, is just poop. He's like, it's nothing but a big steaming stack of dung. It's literally what the Greek word is. It's the Greek word skubalon. You don't believe me? Look it up, scubalon. It literally just means that. Paul's like, my past life, everything that I used to look at as a badge of honor, he's like, it's nothing but dung. That's all it is. That's all it is to me now. Before the gospel came, he hated the church. Post-gospel, loved the church. Pre-gospel, persecuted the church. Post-gospel, he's not planning churches. He's planning them because he loves God. He's changed. He's a different person. Let me say one last thing. The gospel has this ability to unite people that normally would never be united. You you understand that? I I can remember, like, before I was a Christian, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I surfed. The group of people I hung out with also only surfed or skateboarded. We let those guys in, too. But the rest of them, like, if you bodyboarded, you weren't part of the club because you bodyboarded, all right? You're you're subhuman. We, we We don't acknowledge your type. It's just, it was just, it was the mentality of growing up in that culture. It's just the way that we lived. We had a particular, you know, bias towards people that were just like us. We loved us. We loved people like us. Anybody else, not us, had different skin color, whatever. We just did not like them. Now that I'm a Christian, look, I, 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 can, I, I actually love you guys at Bodyboard now. And I don't have any problem going out surfing and hanging out with y'all. But the point of the matter is, is that's what the gospel does. It transforms the way that we act and think and love other people. No matter what type of background they are, no matter what type of ethnicity they have, it doesn't matter. We're one in Christ. That's what the gospel does. The second thing that we see about this is that the gospel is also authoritative. It's authoritative. Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle, Not for men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The point that I want to make with regard to this is Paul wants us to catch something very carefully. Is that Paul is actually defending his apostleship. In short, the reason for that is because Paul went and preached, or or, I'm sorry, planted these churches all around in this area that was called Asia Minor. Or otherwise known as uh, modern day Turkey. And when he went around planting these churches, um, oftentimes he didn't stay or hang around there that long. Sometimes because he got arrested, got kicked out of the city, they, he wasn't welcome back there anymore. So here's Paul planting the churches. It might be three weeks old, and he's like, I, I, I got a jet. I got to leave. And so what was happening is sort of as a church, you know, maybe a year into it, these guys that are, you know, three week old in the Lord, you know, they're precious saints, love Jesus. They're trying to figure things out. They don't have any New Testament texts to read. Most of them don't even have Old Testament texts to read. All they have is the Holy Spirit and prayer. They sing songs together and they talk about the things that Paul talked to them about. That's about it. And, and so they're hanging out. And then all of a sudden these guys from Jerusalem would come. They'd show up. And they'd be like, you know, this is great. You guys got a church going on here. You love Jesus. What's going on? And they're like, oh man, it was great. This guy Paul, the apostle, came in, told us about Jesus. We love Jesus. We used to be, you know, people that, you know, had nothing to do with God. Now we love God. One of the things that these Judaizers, these people from Jerusalem were asking them, is asking them questions like, well, you know, really important question, we, we feel like we've got to ask you guys. Have you all been circumcised? 
And they're like, circum what? You know, what are you talking about? Like circumcised, you know, snip. Have you all been circumcised? And they're like, we haven't heard about that. What, what is that? The guy's like, well, let me show you. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, some, I can just imagine like some 17-year-old guy, he's just like, I'll do it. You know, he shows up and he's like, what's up? You know, and then all of a sudden he's like in pain because he gets circumcised. He's like, ah, circumcision, it's not good. The reality is this. That's what was going down, is that these guys were like, okay, here's the thing. If you really want to be Christians, follow God, you got to first enter into Judaism. And the covenant of entering into Judaism is circumcision. So the rite of passage into Christianity, you have to come through the door of Judaism, be circumcised, and now you can be uh, or have access to all the benefits that come through Christ. See that? That's what they were saying. In a lot of ways, it's not that much different than what a lot of churches do today. Here's the way churches do it today. They'll say stuff like this. Unless you speak in tongues, you're really not walking with Jesus. You really don't know God. Or unless you've been baptized in the same methodological way that we perform baptisms, then your baptism is invalid. Unless you worship the way that we worship, according to the supernatural vision that we have then you're really not worshiping God. You've got to do it this way. You've got to wear a head covering. If you don't wear a head covering, then you're really not worshiping God properly. You see that? What it is, in short, it's Jesus plus something. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus being baptized the way that we tell you how to be baptized. Jesus plus your submission to our leaders. Jesus plus whatever, fill in the blank. Jesus plus our special dress code. Jesus plus the King James only Bible. Jesus plus a pre-trib rapture view or post-trib rapture view. Jesus plus you must be a Calvinism. Jesus plus you must be an Arminianist. Some of you be like, what, Calvinist, Arminianist? You'll figure it out someday. The point that I would make is this. This is exactly the way it gets done in today's churches. It's Jesus plus something else. Then you can be mature. Then you can have sort of this special, unique relationship with God the way that we have with God. You know what's happening with these guys? They were super confused. They're like, oh, this is weird. I mean, Paul taught us that we're accepted in Jesus alone. And they're like, ah, oh, Paul... Do you even know who Paul is? Like, this guy persecuted the church. He's not even a real apostle. The dude's messed up. All right? I mean, God bless him, but the dude's messed up. It's kind of like what's going on. So, so now they're like, oh, my gosh. You know, we, we thought we knew Jesus, but maybe what Paul taught us was not correct. So now they're all confused. Now they're all, you know what they're doing? You know what, you know, you know what these guys were doing? Everybody's getting turned into circumcision checkers. Okay, think about that. Do you want to go to a church where everybody's asking if you've been circumcised? That place sucks. <laughs> Horrible place to be. You don't want to be at that church. You don't want to be in that environment because it's all about what you've done. Did you get it done to you? Did it happen to you? Did you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Did you speak in tongues? Did you believe the doctrine that we're trying to pass on to you to believe? Did you get your kids enrolled in homeschool? Because if you didn't, if you're still sending them to the non-Christian secular institution, you're probably going to go to hell. I'm all into homeschool. We've done it. But I also know the attitude oftentimes goes with it. My point is that anything we add to Jesus is not the real gospel. It's destroying the real gospel. There's a lot of things we can talk about in the church in Christian doctrine that are non-essential issues that we can absolutely agree to disagree on. Homeschooling, should you, should you not? Christian school, should you, should you not? We can agree to disagree. Uh, whether or not the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, after the tribulation, mid-tribulation, stuff we can agree to disagree on. We don't have to divide over it. Whether or not gifts of spirit are for today or was it for something in the past, we can agree to disagree on those things. But when you start tampering with the gospel, what you're actually left with is something other than the gospel. There's not a gray issue. There's not a gradient in terms of the gospel. There are levels of gradiency in secondary issues, not 
in the primary issue of the gospel. No level of gradiency. There's only either black or white. There is either you have gospel or you have something other than gospel. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying. And so his point is to try to help these people to think that the message that I brought to you, I brought to you not as something I made up myself. So he's going to point out how the gospel is authoritative, that it can be trusted. It is the gospel that was delivered by God through God, and Paul happens to be the mouthpiece. What Paul's doing is pretty bold. I mean, it's something that I can't even do. I can't be like here, like, look, guys, everything I say, you must obey. It's gospel truth, uh, and don't ever question me because I'm the Lord's anointed. If you ever hear me say that or anybody standing in this vicinity Run, run, and take your neighbor with you. Don't ever come back to this place. All right, this is not the church for you. There's lots of other good ones. This is not, you don't, you don't want to be here because lightning will come down, all right? The point of the matter is, is that Paul is in a very unique place and he's basically saying, what I'm speaking to you is from God. I didn't make it up. I'm just delivering to you what God had gave, given to me. I am an apostle because God made me an apostle. People didn't vote, count me in, and say, Paul's an apostle. Let's ship him out of here. Paul says, I'm an apostle because God made me an apostle. The message I bring to you is the message, not that I made up, but the message that Jesus gave to me. So now now I give this message to you. That's what Paul is exclusively saying. In short, what Paul is basically really trying to identify is this issue of how we know that the gospel is authoritative. It's not what we know about the gospel, it's how we know. In short, this is an issue about epistemology. It's a big word, but it basically means how we understand, how we know. It's the process by which we come to know that something is truth. Traditionally, there's been four predominant or three predominant ways by which we come to know something is truth. The first is tradition. This could be your tribe, your home, your cul-de-sac, your neighborhood, uh, your culture. They dictate to you truth. They say this is what truth is. You believe it. You don't question it. You move on, and it's truth. It is what it is. You know, it may be false truth, but it doesn't matter to you because in your mind, in your worldview, in your perspective, it is. The secondary form is subjective. This is kind of the postmodern type mentality is look within yourself. What do you feel? Listen to what your heart is telling you. This is what defines truth for you. A very subjective. It can also be based upon experience. Um, and the, the idea, this is, this is the world in which we live in today. It's like if I feel something to be right, then it is right. And the faultiness with that is we're like, what's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? And the reality is, That's exactly what Hitler did. That's what every serial rapist and murderer thinks. You understand that? That's how they've come to their own knowledge of truth, is they feel that something's right, and they take it. They embrace it. They feel, they think that the Aryan race is the predominant race, and therefore any other race is subordinate to that race, and as much as we have the power, let's remove any of them. Let's just remove it him because we feel, we trust, we believe. We've come to a knowledge that this is how it is. Again, subjective. The third way is by way of revelation, meaning we have a God who speaks. We have a God that communicates. We have a God that reveals. We have a God that unveils. That's what the Bible teaches, is that we have a God. We're not left to speculation where we have to try to figure out what God is up to. We have to figure out what God is saying. We have a God of revelation that he reveals to us himself. Our understanding of God is not exhaustive. Please understand that. We don't know everything we can know about God. But we do know enough about God by which to trust his son Jesus, by which to place confidence in God's solution, by which to love God. We have enough information about God by which he's chosen to reveal to us to transform our lives. The purpose of the authority of the gospel is that now as a result of its authoritativeness in our lives, we can submit to it, we can trust it, we can give ourselves over to it. You don't obey opinions. You don't obey suggestions and you don't obey speculations. The Bible places emphasis upon our responsibility to obey gospel. Why? Because it's authoritative. Take a look at the next two verses. Romans chapter 10, verse 16. It says, 
Paul's talking about these group of people. He says, and not all of them have obeyed the gospel. The second verse says this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 8. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the important thing to understand is that when we talk about gospel, we're also talking about gospel not only as transformative, but also as authoritative. Does that make sense? Now, I know we realize, you know, we live in a day and age where we just fight that. We don't like the fact that it just sounds so like, it seems so arrogant. How can you say it is what it is? And without any question to be open to that, can't we just at least leave room for some sort of subjectivity? And the point of the matter is, is that what God's trying to say is false beliefs lead to false lifestyle. Doctrine matters. Let me give you an example on a very practical level. If you, say, are a woman, and you constantly believe you're fat, and you're not, you'll become anorexic, you'll become somebody that will struggle with an eating disorder, and if you've ever had a friend like that, and you've sat down with them, you know what you're doing? You're going to say to them, you're beautiful. You really are beautiful. You're not fat. You are a gorgeous person. You don't need to do that. You know what you're doing? You're preaching away false doctrine and preaching it good doctrine in their life. That's what you're doing. Because we have this belief, this fundamental belief, that what we believe, the doctrines we hold to, affect the way that we live. The same is true with the gospel. Paul's point is that if we have a false gospel, then we will lead false lifestyles. If we have a true gospel, then we must fight for it because it is authoritative. It will affect the way that we live. So the first thing is transformative. Second thing, it's um, authoritative. The third thing is this, that it's universal. Chapter 1 verse 2 says this. Paul says, I write all this to you with all the brothers that are with me, to the churches in Galatia. So again, the region that Paul's writing this to is in the area of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, a lot of discussion is, you know, was Paul writing this to a particular state there in Galatia? There was a state called Galatia, and then there was a region called Galatia. Now, if I were to ask you, you know, what's your area code? You're like, 805. I'm like, oh, sweet, you live in Slow. You're like, no, I live in Ventura. 805 covers a really big area. It's kind of the same way with Galatia. Galatia is this big, vast area, and it's believed that Paul's writing this letter to all these churches in this region, they're all going to read it. They're all going to get an opportunity to go through it and understand what it's trying to say in order to respond to it and live accordingly to it. And so this reality is that it's universal, meaning that it's for all people. And it's not just for that region of Galatia because we're reading it 2,000 years later in America. So it's still impacting and affecting us. The next thing, the fourth thing is this, is that it's redemptive. Here's what Paul says, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Now, we, we live in a day and age in which we have this propensity to dumb down the gospel. And the reality is, is that we do so because we think, well, the gospel is offensive. We don't, we don't want to say things that will be offensive to people. So we, we use different words. We, we actually edit out certain words. I mean, think about it this way. I would encourage you, like, next time you listen to your favorite Bible teacher, read your favorite Bible, you know, author's book, ask how often they mention the concept of sin. Because Paul can't even get over 20 words into this original Greek document without actually addressing the fact of sin. Do you get that? This is not just a secondary issue that should be covered up and modified and edited out because it causes sort of an uncomfortableness the reality is, is that we live in a world that's steeped in sin, that's affected by sin. Our lives are affected by sin, either by the fact that we sin or we've been sinned against. Somebody has sinned against us. Maybe you're somebody that has been affected by that. You've been, you know, someone had took advantage of you. If you're a girl, maybe you were raped. Something happened to you that was offensive, that was destructive to you, that created great problems and trauma in your life. We live in a world where we sin, and we are sinned against. And the fact of the matter is the only way to deal with that is to not turn away from it, not to edit it out of our speech and our conversations because somehow someone might be offended by it, but to address it head on, but to apply the appropriate solution that God applies. 
That makes sense? Now here's the point. In today's culture, we oftentimes think about preaching the gospel. We say things like this. You know, if I were to go downtown, if you're hanging out with some buddies, you're like, you know, I'm going to go preach the gospel, go talk to somebody and tell them about the gospel. So you walk away, you go over to that person, you see him sitting there on the curb, you hang out with him, you start talking, you're like, look, yo, I know exactly where you're at. My life is just as messed up as yours. I was on the block just like you were. My life was messed up. I was involved in drugs, all sorts of sin, all sorts of scandal I found myself in. I used to be a sinner just like you, messed up just like you. All sorts of horrible things I did, did drugs, smoke crank, rollerbladed, listen to country music, all these things. And, but, but God, in great kindness and mercy, forgave me, washed me, cleansed me, and restored me. And you come back to your buddy, like, how'd that go? And your buddy's like, how'd that go? And you're like, gosh, it was, it was awesome. I totally got to share the gospel with him. And you're like, oh, what'd you say? You're like, oh, I didn't want to get all theological on him, so I didn't tell him about redemption or justification or sin. I told him about how God changed me. I want to be as clear as I can. That was not the gospel. Yeah, that was not the gospel. That was a testimony but that was not the gospel. Here's what I mean. I'm not trying to diss testimony, because testimony is important. Testimony is what the gospel does to us. It affects us. It changes us. Testimony may help out other brothers and sisters and Christians, people that are going through hard times like us, but just simply telling somebody how God helped you and changed you and modified your behavior or your life or you know, changed certain patterns that were just destructive or whatever in your life is not the gospel. It's not the gospel unless you convey and communicate the way Paul does in this. And I'm not saying, you know, that I gotta, hold on a second, I gotta, I gotta get the gospel, I gotta read it exactly the way Paul. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the gospel includes or is the good news. But before the good news comes or is announced, there's also the bad news. It's that word that we just don't like to talk about. I mean, I'm not kidding, guys. There are books written to church pastors and leaders to say, don't talk about sin. People don't want to hear about sin. It's offensive to people. Nobody likes to be called their sinner. Nobody likes to be identified as such. It's very negative. It makes people feel bad. What we need to do is make sure people feel good. they got enough issues going on in their life that makes their lives feel bad. I mean, after all, the economy took a dump. Everything's horrible in this life. Their you know, marriage is in a wreck. Their kids are like rebellious. You know, everything's horrible in their life. The last thing they do is go to church and have some dude yell at them about how they're sinners. I believe that there's a way that it can be done so the guy's not all angry and tense and he's sweating and he's pulling hamstrings while he's doing it. But I think there's a way to convey it in a way that yes, we, we sin and we've been sinned against. We live in a world that is sin-infected. But the gospel... It's just like what Paul says here. Listen again. He says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That's the point. That's the gospel. Jesus came for the purpose, the unique purpose to deliver us from our sin, to set us free, to follow him. That's it. That's the good news. Because the story of the Bible is he says he came to deliver us from this present evil age. The implication is that this world in which we live in, the age in which we live in, is in rebellion against God, doesn't love God, doesn't serve God, doesn't want to be with God. And what you have to understand, to live in a lifestyle that seeks to push God out, that seeks to live autonomous lives, is actually pushing yourself away from the Prince of Life himself. You understand that? It's like a little child, little child, two-year-old saying, I know what's best for my life. I know my mom and dad, or I at least perceive my mom and dad to always be throwing rules down to kill me. They don't want my joy. That's why they never let me have suckers while I'm laying in my crib. That's why they're always changing my diaper. They just, they want to make my life miserable. I want to sit in my diaper. It's warm. I want to have a sucker laying down in my crib. It's wonderful and sticky. It's, it's awesome. I want all these things. And I want to be able to play in the street anytime that I want. My parents are killjoys. It's, it's the exact opposite. Mom and dad are like, we're life givers. First of all, we gave you life, and we know what's best for your life. Sitting in your diaper might feel really good, but the reality is you get nasty rashes, and it just ain't good. You don't want that stuff. It ain't good for you. 
we want life, all right? Like, pastor said poop twice already today. Yeah, the point that I want to make is this. God wishes life for you and I. Problem is that we live in death. We live in autonomy where we want to live away from God. That's death. We think it's freedom, but instead what ends up happening is we become slaves to the very things that we think will give us free and li- give us freedom and liberation. But Jesus says, you know what ends up happening? These things become like nooses and yokes around your neck, and you're enslaved to them. That's why he says this to his friends and his disciples and the people that he's talking to. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The implication is you got this big, nasty, horrible yoke on your neck, and it's killing you. Anybody feel like that today? You feel drained down, sucked of life. If you've ever been in financial distress and had creditors on the phone calling you, my family, we just watched Confessions of a Shopaholic Friday night, all right? You guys ever see that? I know it's a total chick flick, but I got nothing but women in my life, all right? And we paused it. We kept pausing it. We're like, and I, I always do this with my kids. Whenever I watch a movie with them, I'm always like stopping it and giving them a theology lesson in the middle of it. I'm like, look, this chick, this woman is so into just idolatry and covetousness, and she is not happy. The chick's enslaved, and she needs salvation. I'm I, always looking for ways to do it, and that's exactly where we're at. The gospel is Jesus comes into our life and sets us free. He delivers us because we are incapable of delivering ourselves. That's what Jesus does. And because we are in our sin, we are locked in our sin, and everybody else is sinful, there are no other solutions on planet Earth by which we can save ourselves or leverage enough grace to get ourselves up back on our feet again. Because even if we can do that in our own strength, we end up becoming prideful. Pride is the worst sin of all. It's what Satan fell by. You understand? We are tainted. This world is tainted. Only Jesus, the righteous, good God, come in human flesh, is free of any taint, any spot, any sin, any even reference or hint of sin, and he delivers us. That's the gospel. That's what God does. The reality of the gospel is that everything that God wants us to understand is that unless your gospel is about this substitutionary beatdown of his only beloved son and subsequent resurrection in your place, you really don't have a gospel. You really don't have a gospel. You got good advice. You got a good story. But you don't have gospel. Jesus is what sets free. The last thing we see is this. Is that the gospel is also doxological. I just want to wrap it up on this. Verse 5 says this. I love how Paul does this. He says, verse 4, For whom he himself gave for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's what Paul's doing. Just imagine, here's Paul writing this letter or having someone else write it and he's dictating it to them. And all of a sudden, he's just thinking about the bigness of his God, the fact that God in human flesh comes into this world. He doesn't just give his face to have his beard plucked out. He doesn't just give his back to those who would scourge it. He doesn't just give his hands to those who would drill nails into it. He doesn't just give his head to those who would drive a crown of thorns into it. Paul says, who himself gave himself in totality for you and I. Paul just pauses and he's just like, this is unbelievable. To him. To him. Be weightiness. That's what the word glory means. Weightiness. The Old Testament word for it is kabod. There's something of substance. Do you know that everything else in this life we devote our passions to, our money towards, we so oftentimes look to to satisfy, are like feathers compared to the weightiness of God. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, I am absolutely overwhelmed by the weightiness, the sheer weightiness of God. The volume, 
the capacity, the bigness, the grandeur, the greatness of God. To Him be glory forever. It doesn't stop right there because He's like, forever doesn't seem to encapsulate all of this. It's not just forever, but it's forever and ever. Amen. That's His point. He's like, we have such a big God. So big in magnitude. So weighty that he satisfies us in ways that we can't even conceive of being satisfied. That he, Jesus, our Savior, came to rescue us from the greatest enemy that we find ourselves struggling with is sin. And the ultimate consequences of sin, which is death. Jesus victoriously conquered that. The gospel ultimately, in short, is about sin, a substitute, ultimately a slaughter, and salvation. That's what the gospel is, about our sin, our substitute, Jesus' slaughter, and our subsequent salvation. That's why the gospel is so good. You modify that, you change that, you edit that, you dumb it down, you transform it, you morph it, you don't have the gospel anymore. You got religion. And you got people fighting hard to protect religion. And when people fight hard to protect religion, it gets ugly. Wars get started. People kill each other. Churches split. They divide. They splinter. Because what gets elevated, predominancy, is not the cross that humbles. But are these little rules, these little pet doctrines, these little ideologies, these little methodologies, these little legalisms, these little things of my way is better than your way, People become prideful and arrogant, and the church becomes a stench rather than a light. We have an amazing God. We're going to finish. We're going to sing because Jesus is so good. People who love sing. This is why, I don't know, 80% of most songs are out there are either about love or being broken by someone who you love. All right? Isn't that right? I mean, most songs are about somewhere in that sphere of things. That's why we sing as Christians, because we love God. We love God for what he's done for us through Jesus. We're going to sing. We're going to have an opportunity to give and confess our sins to, to God, to lay them down at his feet. We'll partake of communion. Communion really is the gospel in a narrative form. We eat the communion. We eat the bread. We drink the cup, and it reminds us in a very clear, tangible, narrative-type format that because Jesus came into this world, suffered, died, allowed his body to be broken, we eat this bread and it's broken for us. And when we eat it, it reminds us of the fact that we're actually whole. And he was made broken. That he was poured out so that I can be made complete. This is how good of a God we have. He loves us. He loves you guys. The gospel changes you. It transforms you. Honestly, this never ceases to amaze me. I've been here almost 16 plus years pastoring this church. Started out in my living room. The stories of watching people's lives go from moving here. Good friend of mine, I tell you about him. Came first service. Uh, went to Cal Poly. When I first met him, I had long blonde hair. He was on the water polo team. Good looking guy comes walking in. He looks like Fabio, all right? Bible study. He's not a Christian. And, and I remember talking to him afterwards, chatting with him. He's not a Christian. And then a few weeks later, people sharing with him, talking to him, loving on him. He ends up giving his life to Jesus. About five years ago, four years ago or so, he ends up moving up out of the area, goes to seminary because he feels God calling him to ministry. Before that, I should say, actually started leading our ministry here. Married a beautiful lady. They got two little daughters. He's pastoring a church right now. It's absolutely amazing. That's what the gospel does. He's helping other people's lives get transformed and changed by the gospel. The gospel changes people's lives. I've seen marriages on the brink of destruction. When people are encountered by the gospel, their hearts melt. They become humble. They begin to realize that their petty differences are just that. Their petty differences compared to the debt that they owed God that has been forgiven them. Their little debts that they're constantly throwing in each other's face nothing to be compared to the debt that God pardoned them. That changes you. 
That changes the way people think about their life and think about their neighbor. I'm gonna pray, we'll worship, we'll sing, we'll confess sin, partake of communion. If you wanna give any other tithes and offerings, you know, if you missed the thing earlier, you can go put in the little donation box in the back. We're gonna just give our time to Jesus and let him continue to speak to us. We're gonna sing to him because he's a big God. We love to sing about big gods. There's only one of them. Just in case you're wondering. (laughs) Jesus, we thank you for how big you are. You are a great God. We thank you for the cross. We love you, Jesus. And let the words that we sing right now, let them just, not just be mere words, let them be songs of love and praise and worship.